This is the Scott Bradley Show podcast. Uh, headline, Toronto home sales tank 40%, prices down nearly $175,000 since April. Then you pick up the spec.com or go on the spec.com just about an hour ago. Rebalanced real estate market cools in July. Uh, Hamilton's numbers are showing a 26% drop in sales. Should we be concerned by this or should we be excited by this? Well, a guy who you know his voice well, you he has a show here with does every weekend with Rick Zamperin. Uh, he's an agent in town, a well-known agent, a successful agent. His name is Rob Golfy. He joins me now. Rob, how are you tonight? Good, thanks. How are you, Rick? Uh, well, it's Scott. You'll get to Scott, do Rick Scott, on the sorry. weekend. That's okay. I, I heard you saying Rick Zamperin, and I just went to Rick. Sorry I do this. That. That's okay. I do the same thing. It's uh, but you get yeah. you will be talking to Rick on the weekend. Look, let's get to this because this to me is I, I know when the government, the the province and the federal government really, but when they wanted to tweak the housing market a bit and make it a little more accessible, they wanted to cool it a little bit. Is do you think this is what they had in mind when they wanted to cool it, or is this beyond what they expected? You know what? I, I personally think that it was it was starting to happen even before. I mean, with the media, you know, of the announcement uh, that they were announcing the, the changes in the uh, in the real estate uh, market. Um, I remember on the on the twelfth of April, that was before Easter. Um, I, I started noticing things changing just a bit, not as much, but just we, we I, I noticed things were changing. And then the announcement came out after Easter. Um, uh, with the wind government, and then, and then it just solidified in uh, in May. Uh, things changed. Uh, housing prices, um, you know, multiple offers weren't happening, and uh, it just uh, it, it, everything started cooling down um, with it. And then we really knew that the market cooled down uh, with June for sure. Like it just, and 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 I don't think the market it has come down. It's just it's just going back to normal before the first quarter of this year. Like it's like it, in, in Toronto, I mean, housing prices just, I mean, they did go extremely high and now they're, they're coming back down to the way they were before, um, before the new year started. So, so it, if, if we erased the first quarter of this year, uh, no, we would not even be feeling uh, of the market being cooled down. We would just be on a continuous pace of, of the, the market that the way it's been going. Rob, here's something that's confusing me about this, though, and I got a bunch of things. We only have a few minutes, but there's a bunch of things sure. I want to get to. We have heard the whole idea, or at least one of the main ideas behind this, was we want to get the market back to a bit of a saner place, so that people who are first-time home buyers, younger people who are just getting into the workforce, they would be able to buy homes. Now that we're seeing the prices dropping down. Why are those people, why are the sales dropping off? Because I would have thought once the prices are dropping, the whole idea was those people would now be snatching up the home. So I could see the prices coming down, but I would have thought the sales would have been at least close to where they were. Yeah, I think they're scared. They're, they're just sitting back because they think, I think they're thinking that maybe the prices are going to drop a little more. And uh, they're just sitting back because a lot of these buyers in the, in the, in the first part of the year uh, they got beat up from all this insane uh, multiple offers and housing prices going up so much. And then all of a sudden we had a dramatic swing in the market. So now what they're doing is they're just sitting back and, and watching. So the buyers are out there. They're sitting on the fence. They're watching. And uh, But we'll, we'll be back to a normal market where it's not going to be as bad with the multiple offers. We'll be at a normal level. And and we're pretty well close to a normal level. I mean, it's uh, of of the market, which is good. I mean, houses are going to take a little longer to sell. Instead of selling in one week, it's going to take 
30 to 60 days to sell uh, in, in a lot of cases. And, uh, you know, there's a chance for the buyer to walk in and, and, and put a clause in his, in his offer, you know, a financing home inspection. Um, which had, which had pretty much stopped for a while, right? Because you kind of had to snatch it up immediately. It did. So a lot of people, a lot of people early this year bought when they were under, under pressure, you know, with multiple offers, and they went in with no home inspection. So now these people are closing on those deals now, and they're finding, they're finding oh, my God, like we got problems with this house. <laughs> And we didn't know about, and now, you know, there's nothing you can do about it. Like, I mean, it's uh, it's just buyer beware. When you're buying under a lot of pressure and, you know, and you're competing against 10 other people, you're going to get, you're going to have surprises. There's no doubt. Rob, have you heard from anybody who bought a home prior to the cool off going, holy crap, the price, the value of my home has just dropped by a hundred grand and I've only been in it for a week. <laughs> well, yes, absolutely. Well, we haven't heard about those guys. Well, you know what I mean, that, though. No, no, the guys that bought at a hundred thousand higher than, than than that they dropped now, but they're trying to sell their house. So what happened is they bought in oh. a high market. They bought in a high market. Now they thought their house value was strong, and it's not. So now they put their house up for sale a month later, and now they're they're in bigger trouble because their their ratio numbers are are off about a hundred thousand. So now those people are having a, a $100,000 increase in their mortgage because they didn't anticipate that. So the guy that bought the house for 800 thinking that he could sell his house for 700 well, he's only, he paid 800 for it, which is probably 100000 too high. Now, the guy that thought he can get 700 he's only getting 600000 for his house. So now he's got a $200,000 difference there, and that's the guys that, that are struggling right now. So, so banks are, you know, they have to be creative with their financing, and, and that's... That, that's what's happening right now. There's been that little bit of turmoil going on right now with the closing. Never even thought about that, but that's a, that's a great point. Is there, are there any homes? Is there a, a segment, a slice of the housing market that is immune to this kind of thing? That they are the, that area, that type of house, that price of house is so hot that really it's not being affected by this right now, or is this across the board? I think um, it, it's pretty well across the board. The, the the lower price right now. There's a lot of townhouses coming up for sale. So the townhouses, uh, it's a very competitive market right now. And even though the millennials are buying all the townhouses, but now there's an abundance of townhouses. So now they're sitting, they're sitting on the market a little longer uh, because they were getting up to a maximum level. Like townhouses were selling between 450 and 550, and that's a lot of money for a townhouse. And um, so we're finding those uh, townhouse prices are coming down, and uh, and it's becoming to more a real, realistic level. And but the, the higher end homes, yeah, definitely a house that would have sold for one point two million. They're struggling getting nine hundred and fifty thousand right now. So, so if you're at either end, let's we only have a minute or two left here. But again, you, let's say first of all, you're a buyer. You are trying to get into the market. Is this the time to buy? Now you're an agent, so I know yeah. you're saying, yeah, everybody, come on, sign up, let's buy a house. Yeah, but yeah, that's right. But still, realistically, your best advice if you're a buyer, are you saying, you know what? hang in for another couple of weeks or month or so because let's see where this thing gets to. Let's see if we've bottomed out yet. Are you saying that or are you saying, no, this no, is the time? This is the time. I would buy now. Why? There's, there's, why? There's good deals. You know why? The market's cooled down a bit. The buyers, it's a, we're, we're in the middle of the summer, plus the market's cooled down a bit. It's a good time for buyers. I, I truly think the market's going to kick, kick in in September. And I'm telling people that have their houses for sale right now, if it's not selling, just hang in there. Your house will sell in September if it's priced reasonably. So you're not just saying buy because you're an agent. No, no, I'm saying I would buy now. Like absolutely, 
this is the month to buy because everybody's uh, there's a lot less buyers out there looking. They're they're like you like I said like you said they're sitting waiting. They're sitting to wait to see if the market's going to bottom out. The market's not going to bottom out. The economy's too strong. It just needed a little cool down, but we're going to be rocking and rolling uh, with uh, with the housing market again. Now, what if what if you're a seller, Rob? Would you put your house up right now, or would you say no? There's enough houses for sale now, and and buyers that are a little cautious. Let's wait for a little while before we put it up. If I, if I was a seller right now myself, and I needed to sell the house, I would price it accurately and probably, uh, and I would sit on it. Uh, there is buyers out there, but if it doesn't sell this month, then I definitely uh, September it will. But if, if they don't need to sell that fast, yeah, wait till September. But 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 the market is moving, and uh, and it's and it's, I I don't think it's going to bottom out. I don't think it's going to come down anymore. It's cooling up. Our sales numbers. So for instance, um, housing prices are up ten percent from last year, but sales are down twenty percent. So the market is still strong. So it just uh, like I said, like. If you wait longer, like the housing prices will keep going up every year slowly. We just had a crazy, insane first quarter that was just, you know, just, you know, it's just, it was just ridiculous how it went. So now we're back to normal level. And so, yeah, if you're buying, buy a house now. Like it's not, I don't think you're going to, I'm not, I don't think you're going to overpay and, and uh, you're not going to, you'll probably get a better deal actually to tell you the truth because you're not going to be competing against other, uh, other buyers as much. The other group of people, besides buyers and sellers, that I wonder about in this, and this doesn't affect you because you're established, everyone knows who you are, there's other people in the market who are well-known real estate agents, but when the market over the last number of years went goofy, there were a lot of people who went and got their real estate licenses, and it seemed like there were a trillion real estate agents out there, and I guess all making a living. And i got to think if this slows down, there are a bunch of people who are not the Rob Golfies of the world who are going to be looking at this going, I don't know how I still make a living at this. There, you know what? I'll tell you, a lot of real estate agents have dropped out from uh, from the early uh, segment this year because they didn't know how to compete uh, of putting multiple offers for their clients because they kept losing out on. So let's say you have a client that's looking to buy a house, and every time you went and found them a house, they fell in love with it. Okay, let's put an offer, and now they're competing against 10 other agents. Can you imagine doing that 10 times and never getting a house? So that agent never got a deal going, so he had... So he's starving, and I know of agents that had to, you know, they're they're quitting, they're giving up their license, uh, they're not doing it anymore just because they had a they had a hard time this year competing, uh, trying to find a house for their clients. It was just too competitive, and now now they just can't make it anymore. It's it, it's a tough. This is a tough business, and uh, yeah, like agents, you got to beware when they when they're in this business, and you know when the market does change, yeah, agents change. There's no doubt about it. Rob Golfie, uh, you can hear him Saturday morning. Saturday mornings, right, Rob? Yes, absolutely. Sa- Saturday, Saturday mornings, mornings at nine. At yep. nine here on CHML uh, with the home with Rob Golfie talking real estate. You'll get a lot more Saturday morning than you did now. This was just the appetizer. That's it. All we, right. We actually we actually are going to be talking with the Vancouver agents, top Vancouver agents, about the market out there on the show this Saturday. Yeah, some of them uh, might be drinking heavily at this point, I would think, based on the numbers I've seen yes. from out there. No kidding, no it, kidding, it's, no uh, kidding. I would look forward to hearing that. Rob Golfie, thanks for the time today. Appreciate it. You're welcome. Have a good night. Thank you. Bye-bye. Uh, the numbers, again, um, you know, down significantly. 26% down in Hamilton since April. 26%. That's, a, that's, that's an adjustment. That's a balance. That's, some people call it a rebalance. Some people will call it a cooling, whatever it is. But that's a big 
amount. And so if Rob is right, we've kind of found the landing spot and it's going to either settle in here for a while and be the norm or come back a little bit. But I mean, Toronto, 40% down, 40% down. And if you are someone who has your house up for sale right now, who six months ago said, as Rob described, you know what, let's buy a house and we can always sell our house. We'll get our money for it. Let's buy a nice new, bigger house. And then your house is up for sale and no one's coming through. Oh man, that is a scary place to be. I would believe that if you have put down, as Rob described it, if you've bought a house at the peak of the housing craze, so you've overpaid for your property. And now you're turning around to sell your place to pay for it. And now you've got a big dip and you're getting way less than you thought. Man, that is a tough, tough, tough place to find yourself. I, I'm rooting for you, but I can understand if you're a little stressed at this point. Both stories, by the way, the Toronto market sagging for 40% and the Hamilton market story, both at the spec.com. If you want to find them there, there's two separate stories. You can read all about it if you want to get more. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML. That's what the Ticats were saying in practice this week when they were fighting with each other. We'll see if they actually can take that won't back down attitude to the field because last week, last Saturday night, uh, they more than backed down. They backed down, put their tail between their legs, ran off the field, scampered into their house, into their hotel, and hid, especially when my next guest opened the phone line so that the Ticat callers, Ticat fans, who had had all Saturday to enjoy a few wobbly pops and then watch that performance, got a chance to talk about their team. Rick Zamperin, have you recovered from the fifth quarter yet? Scott, uh, good evening. Uh, yes, I have. You know, it's, it's always interesting talking with uh, Ticats fans, especially after a <laughs> loss, because the, the emotions are raw. There is, you know, and in this case, with the team that's 0-5 and coming off, you know, the third worst shellacking in league history, uh, you know they're irate, they're calling for change, many of them are calling for change. Um, so much so that I, I fully expected the Arkells, Ticats, or Hummin to be the intro music into the segment, but I hear that they are now recutting that song, the Ticats are scrapping. So uh, we'll, we'll see how that does. You know, they could do all kinds of different recut versions of that song, which just change the verb depending on the circumstance. The Arkells could have a million different versions of that. But, but yep, no, different. as I said to the listeners just before you were coming on here, um, that what I'm not what they don't know is that after Saturday night, Sunday morning's fifth quarter, you were actually on the floor in the fetal position in your office for three <laughs> days, recovering from the ire and venom that you faced that, that was not even directed at you. It was uh, it was it was an interesting emotional group of Ticat fans, and I think quite appropriately so. Well, I think so. I mean, when you when you watch this team year in and year out, and you realize that. You know, they have a lot of talent on this team. They have, uh, you know, some potential. They have been to a couple of Grey Cup finals in, in recent memory. So, you know, there is, uh, you know, some talent on this roster. And I think that has, uh, and, and, and rightfully so, raised some expectations in this city that, you know, this team, this franchise is close to winning the big one, uh, which hasn't happened since 99. So when they uh, stumble out of the gate year after year, which they have in the Kent Austin era, and that's not just new to his era. I mean, that was Charlie Taff and Marcel Belfay and, and, and coaches even before that. 
um, there is still that expectation that, uh, you know, it's a long season, you know, we'll be there in the end, we should challenge for a playoff spot, we have some good players. And when that doesn't materialize, fans come out in droves to say, hey, we, we, we want to change, this team should be better. They hold the Tiger Cats football club accountable and they hold their feet to the fire. And, and in this instance, uh, they want some answers. They want to see this team perform uh, 180 degrees uh, different than what they did uh, in Calgary. Well, keep one thing in mind. Today, today is Tom Brady's 40th birthday. He's yes. the oldest player in the NFL who's not a kicker or a punter. Tom Brady was in university, still playing for Michigan last time the Ticats won a Grey Cup. <laughs> it's been a long time, and for a while there, it looked like they were getting closer. And then over the last two or three years, it's gotten a little further and a little further and a little further. And if I'm a diehard Ticats fan looking at this year, I'm thinking it's a lot further. I can get the frustration. I really can. Yeah, I mean, you know, this team is trending downwards. You know, in year one and two of the Kent Austin era, 2013-2014, they go to back-to-back Grey Cup championships. They, they don't win the final, but, I mean, there's a lot of hope uh, going into the third year of the plan, quote-unquote, that, you know, maybe this team can get over the hump and, and finally win. But then they lose in the East Division final to Ottawa, and then last year lose in the East Division semifinal to Edmonton. So they go from back-to-back Grey Cups, to an East final, to now an East semifinal, and now this year... There is no uh, East quarterfinal, just for the record. Exactly. I mean, this year, very much in danger of making the playoffs. So much so that there have been just a handful of teams that have started uh, in the history of the CFL that have started 0-5, and and only 9% of the 32 teams that have started 0-5 have made the playoffs. So they, they got a lot of work to do. What what year of Bob Young's five year plan is this right now that we're in? Sorry, that that's well, sarcastic. He, I'm sorry. He, <laughs> he purchased the team in, in October of 2003, so you know 2004 is his first season. You know this is year 13 of, of the quote unquote five year plan. Let's be honest. If they go out and win tomorrow night against an undefeated Edmonton Eskimos team, I think probably despite the badness that has gone on to this point, in the eyes of many, all is right with the world again. We're back on track. We're now got Winnipeg, and we can beat Winnipeg. If you've beaten Edmonton, they'll figure we can beat Winnipeg. And then you've got Ottawa, and Ottawa's not playing well. And then you've got Labor Day, and all is right in the world. Is it, first of all, it, with a win, am I, am I close? Winning cures all. I think you're bang on, because let's, let's look at the... Uh, the scenario here, the Ticats are 0-5, Edmonton 5-0, and the, the last remaining unbeaten team in the CFL. Hamilton somehow beats Edmonton tomorrow night at Commonwealth Stadium. They're 1-5. Uh, they're just a couple of points really out of a playoff spot. Let's, let's say four points out of a playoff spot with, uh, you know, uh, 12 more games to go in the regular season. And they've yet to play Ottawa. They've yet to play Montreal. They've only played Toronto once. They have... A lot of home games coming down the stretch. So if they win tomorrow night, given the records of the two teams, given what's still ahead on the season schedule, I think there's going to be a lot of callers on the fifth quarter late tomorrow night that say, maybe we got a shot. Okay, so let's look at the other two options. Because, again, if they win, I think most people almost, well, they don't forget because 60-1 to is unforgettable, but they will put aside what's happened and feel very optimistic. Let's say they lose in a really close game, like they did against Edmonton two weeks ago. What then? What's the feeling then? What's the vibe then? What's the result of that, other than the fact that they lost the game again? 
I think the sentiment is that, you know, this team has to find a way. There's got to be something different that they have to do to get a win. Because a loss is a loss is a loss. Whether you lose 31-28 on a last-second touchdown drive engineered by Mike Riley two weeks ago, or you get humiliated 60-1 to last week, it's still zero points in the, in, in the standing. So if they squeak out a victory or if they just barely lose tomorrow night, I think most fans, well, obviously, if they win, they'll, they'll be most fans will be happy. But if they lose, I think the, the prevailing sentiment is, you know, this team's not going to win a game this season. I mean, the, the injuries, the bad luck, and they brought in Jim Jones as an assistant coach now. You know, this team is kind of grasping at straws, and they're not sure how to push all the right buttons to get that two points. So I think the sentiment is, uh, lose by a little, it's still a loss, and that still stings. Heaven forbid, what happens if they lose by a lot tomorrow? Man, oh man, uh, I think the walls start to cave in uh, in terms of the fans. I mean, they're going to throw everything in the kitchen sink at the fifth quarter, I'm sure. Um, and, and on that note, we had a record amount of downloads for the fifth quarter podcast. And I'm talking like blown all the statistics out of the water in terms of all the fifth quarter shows we've done. It was absolutely amazing. So if they lose again, let's say it's 40 to 10 or whatever the score is, something. A big score. Uh, yeah, something embarrassing. I think uh, the fan base is going to call for heads to roll. I think the moves that were made this week to bring in June Jones to find, uh, you know, or, or, or bring in a new set of eyeballs to look at what's happening, I don't really think that's going to appease the fan base. They're going to look at, depending on obviously how the game goes, but they're still going to look at Ken Austin. They're still going to look at Steph Potastic. They're still going to look at Jeff Reinbold. Really have been three kind of key targets. Uh, through this 0-5 stretch, and I think that uh, they'll just say, hey, look, listen, something's got to change, and until that point comes, uh, we're not going to win or we're not going to be successful. According to a report I read, uh, Scott Mitchell, the president or the CEO of the team, has said that Kent Austin is not being fired, so this season mm-hmm. is his. But if it was another bad loss, is that comment just a comment that you make because you're the CEO of a team and you have to say that kind of thing, or... I mean, what do you, again, if they were to lose big, can you continue to just say Kent Austin is our guy? Well, I, I would expect that CEO Scott Mitchell said that, not, not only just to say it, but I think he, he does do have to say something like that because he full well, well knows that, you know, Kent is going to be his guy throughout this 2017 campaign. But if they lose big again, I, I, can, I can envision a scenario in which, uh, Scott Mitchell goes to Ken Austin, or Kent realizes himself that, okay, maybe it's me, maybe I do have to step back and, and step aside and let someone else kind of be the voice for this franchise. On the sideline. Exactly. Yeah. And and if he does realize that, that doesn't mean he's going away. He's still the VP of football operations. He's just no longer the head coach. And bringing in a guy like Jude Jones, who has been a head coach in the NFL and in the NCAA and, and very successfully in the NCAA, and a guy who has had experience on CFL sidelines with uh, Toronto, and I think he was with Ottawa as well. Uh, yeah, offensive uh, coordinator I, for a year with yeah, Ottawa, yep. I, I think that could be maybe a succession plan. Uh, certainly someone uh, very different from Jeff Reinbold, who is really, as of right now, I guess the default kind of head coach, if, if Kent were to step away. But now with Jones in, you would kind of give him uh, the reins over, over Jeff Reinbold. Well, let's be honest. I don't know how, even if Kent Austin were to be gone, I don't know how you could possibly give the head coaching job to Jeff Reinbold because the defense for a lot of this has not been very good. And now if you're going to make him, he's the defensive coordinator and head coach. He's got more things to distract him. I, I, I don't know how you make that choice. That, that to me would not be one that would sit well with a lot of fans. 
Yeah, that that would be a hard one to swallow unless they said, "All right, Jeff, you're just the head coach. You know, our new DC is you know so person, sure. person A, B, and C." Yeah, I mean, then uh, I think you take a little bit of the heat off the defense. But it's going to be interesting tomorrow night because the Cats have made a couple of changes on defense. Simone Lawrence is back from injury. Larry Dean moves back to that middle linebacker spot. Dominic Ellis, who they just re-signed after cutting him in training camp. He's back in that wide side uh, linebacker position. They have a new safety. Will Hill moves from the linebacker to safety. Courtney Stevens now a backup. Uh, so they've got a number of changes in that in that defensive unit. Uh, Justin Capicotti is starting this weekend. So I think with that new look, depending on how they perform next week, if if they or uh, tomorrow night, if they have a uh, um, a spirited even even uh, a game in which they kind of limit Edmonton's offense. And let's face it, you know the Eskimos don't have as a dynamic offense as Calgary or even Toronto does, uh, I think that the, the defense plays well. I think that's uh, you know, a checkmark for Reinbold. There is another part. When June Jones comes in to the Ticats, he is a guy who, as you've alluded to, he's been an offensive coordinator, he's been a head coach, but he is an offensive guy. That He was a quarterback as a player, and he is, in a lot of ways, he's very similar to Kent Austin. He loves to throw the ball. He's an offensive mind. He's a former quarterback. But that means now that you have Kent Austin essentially as an offensive coordinator because he's been calling the plays most if well most of the season. June Jones, who is an offensive guy, and sitting there somehow trying to fit into this mix is Steph Potasic. And that that kind of in my mind makes three offensive coordinators for one football team. I don't know how that possibly works. I'm wondering, I want to know from you, if you were running an athletics department at a Canadian university right now, would you not be on the phone to Steph Potasic as fast as you possibly can if you needed a coach saying, hey, spot's open if you need one? Yeah, without a doubt. I mean, if I'm Steph Potasic, I'm, I'm kind of looking at this situation almost feeling like a third wheel. Like, here's Kent Austin, who's not even allowing me to call the plays. I'm the offensive coordinator. Now he's bringing in, you know, one of the, the fathers of the running shoot offense, who basically that's what the Ticats run. They, they don't run, they just shoot. Uh, and, 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 you know, most recently they're just firing blanks. But, uh, you know, if I'm, if I'm Steph Potasic, I'm, I'm somewhat concerned about my future, given that we know sometime down the line, if this team continues to struggle, there's going to be someone, or there could be a couple, that are going to be the, the, the fall guy or the fall guys, and he might be one of them. And that's going to be very unfortunate because here's a guy who really took a football program at McMaster and made it a uh, almost a superpower, really. I mean, they won a Vanier Cup, their only Vanier Cup championship not too long ago. Uh, he was the architect of bringing a lot of those players on that team and, and cultivated them into a perennial uh, uh, Vanier Cup contender. So if I'm any, never mind OUA, CIS, a football team or has any aspirations of doing uh, some great things with their uh, their football program, I would definitely be calling Steph or the Ticats to say, hey, can we talk to him and, and maybe, uh, you know, bring him uh, out to where we are. Yeah, I I just don't know when I look at this how he fits into this. And, and look, I'm not in the meetings. I'm not in the dressing room. I don't, I, I don't know what his situation is in this, but it does seem like there's a lot of guys who are doing – if not the same job as him, at least similar enough job description that I don't think this is what he would have signed up for. Yeah, I mean, and, and we've been told time and time again, you know, this offense is Ken Austin's brainchild. This is his playbook. He has created this. 
He has developed this scheme and this format for this football team. June Jones, we know, is the assistant head coach. He's that extra set of eyeballs, but he's he's not even going to be looking at the defense. He's not a defensive-minded guy. He's probably not even going to be concerned with the special teams. Dennis McKnight, I think, is doing an okay job on the special teams front, but he's an offensive guy. His eyeballs are going to be on how to improve this Ticats offense, which has struggled mightily. They're in last place in, in half or even more than half of the offensive categories in the Canadian Football League this season. And if you're Steph Potasek, you know that, A, this is not your playbook. B, you're basically just at practice kind of coordinating and making sure the guys are, are running the plays that are going to be installed in the playbook for this upcoming game. Now, aside from that, you're not calling the plays. Your, your, your offensive input in the offense is now just a, a, a foregone conclusion that it's you know the, that, that third-wheel scenario, that kind of third voice in the boardroom, and, and Kent and, and June are going to have really all the say. Let me ask you one more thing, because this has been a controversial issue. Um, Kent Austin blanched when he when this was raised by Glenn Souter on the broadcast a while back. There was the suggestion that he and Zach Caleros, the quarterback, may not be seeing eye-to-eye. Now, I don't know if there's any truth to that or not. He insists no. Souter says he thinks there might be. But there was a lot of talk, Rick, when Tommy Condell, who was the offensive coordinator, left the Ticats for family reasons, family quote-quote reasons. We don't know again why that was. But there was a lot of comment that Tommy Condell was a great buffer between Zach Caleros and Kent Austin and was sort of the the, the, the soft cushion to bang your head into, I suppose, to, you know, if there's frustration or whatever, to be between those two guys. Do you think June Jones, part of what he's going to be doing here, If first of all, if you believe that is the case, do you believe that that's partly going to be his role? I'm going to be the buffer now between Austin and the quarterback. I think that could possibly be, but I, I would have thought that Potasic would have been that buffer. Uh, you know, he, he had the same role as Tommy Condell, so was it not or is it not working between uh, Potasic and Caleros? Uh, is there some tensions? Perhaps, you know, that's kind of hard to tell, especially in meeting rooms and behind the scenes. We've certainly seen a couple of instances where Zach, you know, coming on the field isn't too happy with the play calling or maybe someone missed a block or an assignment. Uh, but the fact of the matter is that if, if that's June Jones's role, uh, that should have to been be the quarterback whisperer. Role. Yeah, be the yeah, quarterback exactly. whisperer but on the sidelines. Make him feel good about himself. Here, here's the difference, though. Steph Potasek uh, was never a quarterback. I mean, here's a guy who had success on, on a different part of the field, whereas June Jones played quarterback in the NFL, has that offensive mind, so that might be the key to you know uh, triggering Caleros of 2015 and, and seeing if he can bring the best out of him. And, and I want to be clear, we don't know what that status is. We don't know We don't know who is right, whether it's Suter or whether it's Austin or whether it's whatever. It's just, it's been bandied around for a long time that Condell was that guy who was able to get through to Zach Caleros. And when he left, when Condell left, there did, Rick, I mean, first of all, Caleros got injured, but it does seem to be a different Zach Caleros without Tommy Condell on that team. Oh, without a doubt. I mean, this offense is almost night and day without Condell. With him, on the team, uh, I mean, they were uh, an unstoppable force in 2015 before Caleros suffered that ACL injury. And, and he was playing yeah. like the most outstanding player. Yeah. Oh, without a doubt. He was hands down the MOP favorite uh, up until that injury. And Condell leaves, uh, you know, for, for whatever reason. I'm sure that story will eventually come out someday and it'll be very interesting, I'm sure. Hmm. Uh, but Caleros, ever since, and, and yeah, obviously the injuries play a part in that. And maybe there's some mental kind of uh, uh, part to that injury aspect. Um, but he, he hasn't been the same. This offense hasn't been the same. They, they really have to find their footing. And if Jones is the guy who can you know, bring him back to that kind of uh, you know, stratosphere, then 
uh, you know, more power to him. That, that should be interesting to watch over the next uh, weeks and months. A uh, kickoff is 9.30 tomorrow, which means the game should be over about 12.30, which means you'll be on the air with the fifth quarter right here on CHML at about 12.30. If it's a win, all will be happy. Rick will be sitting here playing, I don't know, Lawrence Welk music or something to pump up the audience. <laughs> if it's a big loss, though, Rick, I, put on your suit of armor for your ears or something, because I don't know, if, if it's a bad loss again, man, you are gonna you may learn some new words that you didn't know before. And poor Will, who's going to be monitoring the sensor button, he, he's going to get carpal tunnel in his finger from pressing that thing. I, I got I to tell you, there were a few instances last Saturday night. <laughs> I, no word of a lie, my finger was squarely on that sensor button ready to press it, uh, because I knew that I knew that the fit, and they were well-behaved. You know, credit to them, but I knew that they were really irate, and, and, and rightfully so, but I, I was ready to press it. At 1 o'clock in the morning, you don't let them just go? You don't get to have the family or the uh, the non-family hour, the adult fifth quarter? We have CRTC and CBSC <laughs> <laughs> to uh, adhere to, so yeah, I, I want to be careful for sure. Uh, 12.30 a.m. tomorrow night, Saturday morning, or... Yeah. As close to the end of the game as uh, as possible, you can tune in and listen to Rick do the fifth quarter, and it's always great entertainment. Last week, Rick, I got to tell you, last week was high entertainment, um, but it's always good. But we'll 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 see where it goes this week. Thanks for the time tonight. All right, anytime, take care. Uh, definitely be listening. If you were not listening to the fifth quarter last week, oh man, you missed it. Will, were you you were working last week, weren't you? You were doing the producing for that. Actually, no. Oh, I, you weren't no, here? No, that was uh, Ben Strawn took oh. over for me, and, and it was, you became the wrong, his responsibility. You picked the wrong one to be off for, my friend. That was... It uh, sounded fun. <laughs> if, there, if there are, like, radio awards for call-in shows, Rick should be nominated for that one, because that was high entertainment, I'm telling you. That was, uh, that was good. We will see what this week brings, but be listening. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML. Over the last number of months, we've been hearing story after story after story about North Korea and stuff that they're doing over there that we're sort of scratching our heads saying, what is going on? Why are they doing this? On Friday, North Korea launched its longest intercontinental ballistic missile ever that experts say, had it gone not on such a parabolic trajectory, but had it flattened out a bit, it may have been able to reach parts of the states. This, of course, is more than a little concerning, more than a little concerning, particularly here in Canada, where in all likelihood, any kind of attack that actually would ever happen, if such a thing were ever to happen, heaven forbid, would probably be coming right over top of us. So we're, we're interested in this for sure. Gordon Chang is an author, a commentator. He is author of Nuclear Showdown, North Korea Takes on the World. He is an expert on this stuff, and we wanted to have him on for a number of days now. We finally have him. Gordon, thanks for doing this today. Oh, well, thank you so much. And by the way, that missile they fired on Friday, yes. it may be able to reach Hamilton. Yeah, so. well, thanks. That's, that's very reassuring. Um, but, you know, there are a lot of people right off the bat who say the answer to this is very simple. You know, just bomb the snot out of North Korea. Like, just take out all their nuclear facilities, leave nothing there. This is a lot more complicated, as I understand it, than that, because there are all kinds of things that would happen if you were to try to do that. North Korea is, is I don't know if, I don't want to say they're ready, but they are in position that they're not going to go down easily. Well, that's certainly true, um, because... 
if there were a use of force. Um, I don't know what the North Koreans would do, but uh, most people think, and, and we would have to be prepared for it, would be a general attack on South Korea. It would be horrific, um, because the North Koreans not only have weapons of mass destruction, nukes and biological and chemical agents, but they've also got a lot of high-explosive artillery that is trained on Seoul, a metropolitan area of about 26 million people. It's within artillery range of North Korea's forces. The deaths in the first uh, day or so could number in the hundreds of thousands. And type that, that type of war could end up in the history's first nuclear exchange. So this is going to be something that you know we... It may be necessary, but uh, certainly the very last resort. Because, as I understand it, not only do they have the ability to fire on Seoul from where they are, and Seoul, by the way, is not far from the border, from the DMZ. It's not, it's, it wouldn't be difficult for the artillery to reach there. As I understand it, from everything I've been reading, a lot of this stuff is already in position and trained on Seoul, so it would only take moments in order to launch all of that stuff. That's right. Their artillery is buried just north of the demilitarized zone, which separates the two Koreas. It's in mountains. They would open doors in the mountains, pop out the artillery, fire. And we might be able to get some of it, but a lot of it, uh, the artillery fire, would get through. And, you know, Seoul is within artillery range. It's like 30 to 35 miles from the demilitarized zone. So um, this is this is obviously going to be um, horrific, and and that's why there are so many other things that we should be trying to do well before we start thinking of the kinetic options. Before we, I, even before I started asking this, I probably should have gone back right to the beginning because this may be a completely silly question. I, 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 I forgive me if this is such a stupid question that you can't believe I'm asking this, but is Kim Jong Un? really nuts, or is that just the caricature that's been painted of him by the media? Um, I think that he's rational. Um, you know, I've never met him. I'm not Dennis Rodman, for instance. <laughs> um, but he operates under incentives that are very different than other world leaders. And so he does things that could surprise us, things that make us think he's irrational. But I think he's acting very rationally within the context of the North Korean regime. So, therefore, he does kill a lot of people, apparently 155 senior officials since he's taken over. Perhaps when you add in the juniors who have been killed, you've got a death toll of maybe four or 500, maybe even more. Um, so, uh, but that makes sense if you're North Korea's leader, because it's a kill or be killed uh, type of regime. But does that make it easier or more difficult to deal with him? Because if he was truly insane... You, I would think you can't ration or reason with him at all. If he is, but is just completely unpredictable, that's a completely different thing. Well, it certainly is. And, and we've got to remember that his primary basis of legitimacy is his bloodline. His bloodline's primary basis of legitimacy is its goal of absorbing South Korea. So um, he is going to use his nukes from blackmail. Um, he is going to try to blackmail the United States, um, by basically trying to break the treaty between South Korea and Washington. And indeed, um, once he gets America's service personnel off the peninsula, you know, we can expect uh, a big conflict. So this is going to be a problem because, you know, he is not going to go lightly uh, or easily. There's also the suggestion that a lot of people have that says, well, he's just this, again, this wild man, this, this person who must be hated within his own country. So what we need to do or what the states needs to do is send in the black ops people and just assassinate him. And once he's gone, things will be better. What would happen if he was to be assassinated? Actually, I think that if, 
Kim Jong-un were killed, uh, things probably would be better um, because uh, the people who surround him, I, I think, are, are going to have, in, are going to see it that's in their interest probably to come to some terms with the international community. But, you know, I could be wrong because, of course, there would be great uncertainty. Um, the people around Kim um, view him as sort of the source of their legitimacy to rule. But if he were not around, I think the type of regime that would be governing North Korea would be very different. It probably would be a collective system, something like we saw in the Soviet Union, something like we see in, in China now, and therefore probably a lot easier to deal with. Okay, so you just described the, what his ultimate goal might be, and that is the annexation to, to be able to get South Korea. But in the meantime, our prime minister, along with other people in recent days, our prime minister used the word that he was being provocative when he talks about firing the missiles. But the root of the word provocative means to, you're provoking something. What is he trying in the meantime to provoke? What, what's the end game of all these missile tests? Besides, I know he's trying to test to see if they can work, but he's also surely doing it to flex his muscles or to show something. What is he provoking? Well, there's a couple of things. Um, first of all, um, he does need to um, develop his arsenal. He needs to uh, show the Iranians, for instance, his primary customers, that the stuff that he sells them works. Um, because that's a big source of revenue for the regime. Um, he wants to be able to get to the position where he feels that his arsenal is reliable. You know, I think that he would prefer to avoid a crisis until he is sure that he can nuke the United States and other countries as well. Um, but, you know, he can't get there without appearing belligerent because he needs to test this stuff. And when he tests it, he, provi- he, he provokes a crisis. Would he be... D- what is the benefit of South Korea to him? Is it simply the land or is it the people as well? And the reason I ask that is, could he not just attack South Korea and drop a nuke on South Korea in order to be able to get that piece of property? Well, that's the worry. Um, the concern is that he'll either do that or he'll threaten to do that. And, and, and once he annexes South Korea by the use of a threat like that um, or the use of weapons of mass destruction, we're going to live in a much worse world because others are going to think that they can do the same thing. we got to remember that Vladimir Putin uh, threatened to use his nukes on the Baltics in August 2014, and there was no pushback from NATO or the United States. And so I'm sure Kim Jong-un looks at that and says, well, if Vladimir Putin can get away with it, why can't I? And so therefore, um, there is one less inhibition for him to do something destabilizing. Would there be any advantage to the United States setting up some nukes in South Korea? I mean, I know it would be accelerating a nuclear race, but to put some there as a deterrent. Um, actually, I wouldn't recommend that. And the reason is that if there were a general conflict on the Korean Peninsula, we would not want to put them in a place where the North Koreans could capture them. You know, when you have nuclear weapons, you need to have people to uh, maintain them, to guard them. And we only have 28,500 service personnel on the peninsula anyway. We don't have any room to take, you know, some of those people out of uh, what they're doing right now. So I don't think that's a good idea. Um, I know that a lot of South Koreans would like to have their own deterrent. Um, We have prevented them from doing so. We've prevented the South Koreans from having more capable ballistic missiles. There is some room for us to um, loosen the 1979 agreement we have with South Korea that puts limits on their ballistic missile program. But giving them or permitting uh, even bringing U.S. tactical nukes on the peninsula, I think, is not a good idea. So let me see if I can sort of figure this out, if I understand. If the idea is that they want to get South Korea, 
they're not going to probably go in there until they can keep the U.S. at bay by having weapons that would potentially threaten the U.S. because otherwise the U.S. can come in and help South Korea, correct? So this is this a waiting period then? As soon as they believe that they have intercontinental missiles with nuclear warheads that could hit the states, that opens the door to an attack on South Korea? That is, um, I think, the point where they try to blackmail South Korea to absorb it. Yes, that starts a whole chain of events that could end up in history's next great conflict. This is again a silly question, and I apologize. But there, there this, are no silly questions. But it's well because just because I know that it's been going on for so long. How did we get here seemingly so quickly? Because I know his father was not exactly a guy that many people saw as a rational dude, but. It seems as though when the sun came in, and it's been, what, 10 years now, less than 10 years, something like that, that things have just accelerated so quickly. He, uh, Kim Jong-un uh, became ruler of North Korea on the death of his father in December 2011, and Kim has accelerated uh, his weapons programs, both the nuclear testing and also the testing of ballistic missiles. We got here through a number of ways, um, but part of it is because there has been a failure on the part of American administrations, Republican and Democrat, liberals and conservatives, to use America's power to defang North Korea. There have been misguided, bad policies that we saw in the Obama administration and the Bush administration, and one could argue even in the Clinton administration. So North Korea did not become instantly dangerous when Kim Jong-un took over. It did not become instantly dangerous on January 20 at noon when Donald Trump took the oath of office. It took a lot of misguided policies to get us here. So is there anything, when we reach this point, is there any non-military endgame here? Could economic sanctions from countries all over the world cripple the North Korean regime or push them back, or are we past that point where that would have an effect? Um, We are not past that point, and that's indeed what we should be doing. The sanctions that are on North Korea are, uh, first of all, not that severe. Um, As American diplomats say, they're meant to bring North Korea to its senses, not to its knees. But also they haven't been enforced, um, and largely because there's been a laxity in American administrations, both the Bush and Obama administrations, for instance. But there's also been um, blatant cheating by China. China has been supplying the North Koreans with materials and equipment for their ballistic missile program. They've also probably been supplying technology for North Korea's most advanced missiles, and missiles more advanced than the ones that were tested on July 4th and July 28th. The Chinese have not been honoring the economic measures that are in U.N. sanctions, and the United States has not been calling them to account. So there is really a lot of room for sanctions to cripple the regime. We can do it, but it requires political will. And it requires not just sanctions on North Korea. It really requires something that the United States has not done in the last three decades. Uh, And indeed, it's the only thing that hasn't been done in the last three decades, and that is to put sanctions on China for its dangerous and provocative support of North Korea. Just before I let you go, and I really appreciate all the time and the insights here, Does the when I look all the way back to Ronald Reagan, I remember the day, or maybe not the day, but the time when Ronald Reagan was talking about the Star Wars program, and we in the Gulf War learned all about Scud missiles, shooting down missiles. Does the United States at this point have any kind of defenses against a, an intercontinental missile, ballistic missile attack? Yes, it does. The United States has the most sophisticated anti-missile defenses in the world, and they can be completely overwhelmed by the North Koreans. How? In what way? How would that work? 
um, they would just fire more missiles than we have into. Oh, I see. Okay. All right. Just numerically. And also the North Koreans could fire when we uh, are caught unaware. That was the point of the July 28th test. They fired at night. They also fired from a location that they had not previously used. We were looking at another location. They fired from someplace else. So this was really a, a, a statement by Pyongyang to Washington that they can get their missiles into the air before we can destroy them. It is, uh, it is halfway between fascinating and terrifying, but uh, Gordon Chang, I really, really appreciate the time today. Thank you so much for doing this. Thank you. Uh, again, uh, I mean, which, I don't know which word you use. It's, it is a really interesting story of what's going on in the world, but when you hear about these things and you realize that this is not simply... See, if this was simply a leader who was insane and everybody around him knew that he was insane, as Gordon said, you could probably go in there and take him out. The states or somebody else could send in their black ops people. Those, those things still exist. Drop them in, assassinate him somehow, and then everyone says, okay, now the crazy man is gone. We can stabilize everything. But if he's not crazy, if he's not out of his mind, if he's not delusional, if he has an end goal, which, again, hopefully this helped you understand what's going on. If the end goal is that he wants to take over South Korea, he wants to annex the two Koreas, he wants to take over so all the Koreas are now one. So it's not that he is just out of his mind and playing with his bomb toys. He actually has something he wants to do. There is a strategy behind this. That becomes very difficult. The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900, AM 900, CHML.